0: Our text this morning is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 46 to 55. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear and rejoice in the truth. And Mary said, He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Amen. Father, as we come to your word this morning, We ask that you would anoint each one of us, Father, to hear with spiritual ears. And, Father, that you would magnify and glorify your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the time to remember his birth together as we think about our confidence and our salvation for all of eternity is bound up in him. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for years now, people have, around the world, debated the identity of Jesus. I read an article this week from a blogger who studied the appearances of Jesus on the cover of the renowned magazine, or known, well-known magazine, Time magazine, down through the years, and he discovered an interesting interplay between Jesus and the culture of the time, the first appearance of Jesus, so called, on the cover of Time was in 1923. And as you look from the years 1938 through 1959, what this blogger noticed was that the covers were stylized all in the format of a greeting card at Christmas time, depicting various scenes related to Christmas, to the birth of Christ specifically, the Nativity or to the so-called Madonna and her child, or to the gifts that the wise men brought. In 1964, Jesus was shown in a more stylized avant-garde art style, perhaps very much in line with the American language poets of the 1960s. When we get to June of 1971, the cover of Time did away with the greeting card format and the avant-garde format altogether, and they portrayed Jesus rather as a revolutionary in a pop art psychedelic picture where a pink and purple Jesus is seen gazing through the clouds, relevant for the times, I suppose. And the title simply read, The Jesus Revolution. By 1999, the cover read, Jesus at 2000, as in the year 2000, and the cover story inside the magazine read this, Jesus' second millennium, a new gospel, a great novelist and biblical scholar examines what faith and historical research tells us after 2,000 years and emerges with his own apocryphal gospel. See, the identity of Jesus seems to change with the times, but the question still remains, who is he really? There is disparity amongst various religious groups as to who he claims to be. The Muslims view Jesus as one of God's most beloved prophets, but not the incarnation of God, nor the Son of God. The Sikhs in India view him as a high-ranked holy man or as a saint. The Baha'i faith considers Jesus to be one of many manifestations of God who are a series of personages who reflect the attributes of the divine into this human world in which we live. And the Jews, his own people, so-called, continue to Reject Jesus as their Messiah, arguing that Jesus neither fulfilled the messianic prophecies in the Tanakh, which is their Hebrew Bible, nor does he embody the personal qualifications of Messiah. Other world religions, such as Buddhism, seem to have no particular view on Jesus at all. When we look in church history from the earliest days of the church, There has been widespread confusion regarding the identity of Jesus. Councils have been held to discuss this very issue. And various creeds have been memorialized for the deity of Christ. But no overall consensus has ever been reached among all people groups. When we think of the Enlightenment philosophers of the 18th century they tried to sanitize Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, of his divinity to naturalize him, to explain him and recast his story in a rational light that makes sense to rational people without all the wonder and miracles that are in the Bible. And all of that 18th century philosophy really gave way to 19th century and 20th century liberalism, which also provided a very fertile soil for the rise of the cults. And the confusion continues right through to today. That really shouldn't surprise us, should it, brothers and sisters? Because there was widespread confusion about Jesus' own identity in his own day in which he lived. You remember that when Jesus was with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16, he asked this question of his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And his disciples responded with a variety of answers. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, and some say one of the prophets. And Jesus looked at them and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered for the group, and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, there is widespread confusion about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ because Only the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ can reveal His true identity to any person. This morning, I'd like to frame this question of Jesus' identity for you after the title of the famous Christmas hymn by William Dix that we all know, entitled, What Child Is This? And I want to answer the question with you from the perspective of the person who arguably knew Him With most intimacy on this earth, his mother, Mary, as recorded in this text which we just read in Luke 1. And we want to know what does his own mother say about his identity? Who does Mary say that Jesus is? This portion of Scripture um, in your Bibles may be titled The Song of Mary. It's also known as Mary's hymn of praise, but in the Latin and I believe the King James and, and other translations hold this. They refer to this section as the Magnificat. The Magnificat. And that is a reference to Mary's opening statement in verse 46, which uh, says this And Mary said, the, My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnifies. That's where we get this title or where the Latin comes from the Magnificat. The context of Mary's song here is important to understand because Mary seems to be speaking in response to something. And so I'd like to invite you to back up with me to verse 26 of this text in Luke 1. And let's read this account of what happened to Mary, a startling, wonderful account. Luke 1, 26, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son, the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary and that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You see, so this is really an answer to Elizabeth's question in verse 43. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Mary is going to exclaim that she is rejoicing in the Lord. This is the reason she has come. She has had a wonderful supernatural appointment with an angel who has told her wonderful things that the Son of God, the Messiah, would come and be born to her. And she believed the message. And she, as a, an act, an affirmation of her faith, takes an 80-mile journey from the north of Israel, from Nazareth, all the way down to the hill country of Judah, which, if, if we look at the account of Joshua, was really probably the city of Hebron or Hebron which was the first city, the royal city of David, before he became king in Jerusalem. And it was in this hill country that, he, that she visits Elizabeth and Zacharias. Zacharias at this time is mute because he did not believe the angel at his word. But she greets Elizabeth and she has this to say. My soul magnifies the Lord. I want you to note first of all that Mary is expressing worship. And not just from her lips, but she is identifying that this is coming from her soul. That's another way of saying her heart. In fact, verse 47 is parallel to verse 46. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. My soul, my spirit, these are describing Mary's inner person. And she from her heart is genuinely worshiping God. The Lord you remember that Jesus in speaking with the Samaritan woman in John 4 said that true worship is done in spirit and in truth. This is not just lip service but this is heart worship. She magnifies the Lord. That is a word that means to enlarge, to make great. And she uses the present active form. In other words, my soul is continually magnifying the Lord. Now, the Lord is the Lord. We don't do anything to make him greater than he already is. But what Mary is saying is that the Lord is taking a bigger and bigger place in her soul. He is becoming magnified to her. And I want you to notice also that Mary only has one object of worship here it is the Lord, whom she also calls God, my Savior. God, my Savior. That tells us something very important about Mary that she knew that she was a sinner in need of salvation. This, loved ones, is one place where the Roman Catholic Church has seriously erred from the Word of God, deviated from the truth. In fact, they've created doctrines of Mary that bolster an idea, a notion, that she herself is sinless. You may have heard of the Immaculate Conception. That doctrine, as you might think, or as you would not think, actually applies to Mary. It sounds like it would apply to the child, that Jesus is the Immaculate One, the Sinless One. But actually, what they mean by that doctrine is that Mary was born without sin from her mother. They also hold to what is called the sinlessness of Mary. In other words, that Mary never sinned in her life. So neither does she inherit the original sin of Adam, nor does she commit any sin in her life. And they further try to bolster this position by uh, a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary. That is, that even after she gave birth to the Lord Jesus, she never knew a man intimately. As if to add to this idea of her sinless purity. But here is a simple testimony from the mouth of Mary herself. And really, from the Holy Spirit who had come upon her at this point and enabled her to speak the word of God in truth. And Mary's declaration is, God is her Savior. And it made her spirit rejoice. That is a word that means to leap, to jump. In fact, it's interesting as you see the connections in these texts. Earlier, we read about John the Baptist as a baby in the womb, when he leaped for joy at the sound of Mary's greeting to Elizabeth because he was in the presence of Messiah and he, being filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, as we're told, recognized the true Messiah when he was in his presence. Mary has a similar response. She leaps in her spirit because she knows that God is her Savior, And even more remarkably, she knows that this child that has come to her is that Savior. The child is her Savior. You say, how did she know that? Well, because Gabriel the angel told Mary the baby's name in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. That means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. And when we look at Matthew's account, which we read for our call to worship in chapter 1, verse 21, Gabriel speaking to Joseph in a dream says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So, Jesus is not just a nice name that he is given to remind people that Jehovah will save someday, but Jesus is the title, his office, that he will actually save his people from their sins. Then Gabriel showed to Mary how this baby is the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy in Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, where he says, he, referring to the baby, will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is no ordinary child. No ordinary child can have a kingdom that never ends. This is an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting child And he will be called that Holy One in verse 35, and the Son of God. These are clear references to God himself, the Holy One and the Son of God. So it was revealed to Mary that Jesus is both eternal God and the long-awaited Savior, and Mary believed the message. And Elizabeth affirmed her belief in verse 45. I want you to notice that Mary doesn't say, My spirit has rejoiced in God the Savior, but in God my Savior. And that is what prompted this deep worship. In other words, the root cause of her rejoicing, of her worship from her inner person, was that she knew that this baby, the Christ, the Messiah, was her personal Savior. And so this is her first affirmation. What does Mary say concerning this child? What child is this? She calls this child God her Savior. And that's very important because everything that she says about God her Savior that follows in this Magnificat is not about God in the abstract, but it is a reference to this God who is in her womb, Emmanuel, God with us. Mary then goes on further to explain why she magnifies the Lord from within and why she rejoices in God, her Savior. This is verses 48 and 49. And she begins to point to examples of what God has done for her. Notice first verse 48, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. She uses the word that means to look upon. To regard means to turn one's eyes toward and to gaze at. This is the first thing that God has done for her. He's turned his attention to her. He's looked upon her. And he has looked upon the lowly state of his maidservant. That is really a word for humiliation. Of her low condition. It's a statement of humility. Mary, in other words, does not have a high view of herself. She has a very low view of herself. Before the Lord, she calls herself quite literally a female slave. She's just a humble slave, a simple young woman, probably a teenager. So pay attention, young people. The Lord is interested in teenagers. She's betrothed to a Jewish carpenter from a seemingly insignificant town called Nazareth, which just means sprout. So you could call Nazareth sprout town. In the region of Galilee of the Gentiles, which is way up in the north. Galilee of the Gentiles, meaning it was an area that was mixed with pagans. So not necessarily a, a great town. She's a humble person in life, socially speaking. But this is important. This lowly state does not only refer to her social status. It refers to her spiritual status. Remember, She rejoices in God, my Savior. So Mary knows that she has a sin problem and she needs salvation. She's not talking about deliverance from her poverty or from her low social status. And she says here, he has regarded me. He's looked upon me. He's he's condescended. He's come down and had compassion on me. And brothers and sisters, is this not the paradox of those who are truly righteous Those who are truly righteous and truly godly don't see themselves that way, do they? They see their lowliest state more than anything. They're just sinners and they ask, why should the Lord pay any attention to me? (laughs) See, this is not a natural statement that Mary makes. This is not a a statement that anyone uh, naturally born in this world would make because people naturally have a high view of themselves. Men, women, and children. That doesn't have to be taught. That's just part of inherited sin from Adam. And it's not until the Lord reveals His greatness to us, His holiness, His righteous standard, which is absolute perfection, and His wrath against all sin and sinners, that we become shattered and we find that We ourselves are humbled before the Lord. We see ourselves now with a lowly state. And then Mary makes this declaration, For behold, henceforth, or from this time forward, all generations will call me blessed. She's saying, behold, pay attention. This is important. All generations, both Jews and non-Jews, the Gentiles, the nations of the world, will pronounce me a truly happy woman. Why, Mary? Why? Is it because uh, you are immaculate from birth and sinless in your life that people will do this? Is it because of your own righteousness that the Lord has given you this special honor to be the mother of the Savior? No. It's simply because He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. In other words, it's because God has simply looked upon her with favor. That's the word grace. Undeserved Kindness. Mary found favor with the Lord. The angel Gabriel said that to her two times. He said, you are highly favored, and you have found favor. And the the sense of you have found favor is you, you stumbled upon it. You've hit upon favor even though you weren't searching for it yourself. And that's exactly the picture of God's grace. It's that reason that she will be remembered by all generations And that she will be given this special honor that she doesn't deserve. And here we are, still talking about it 2,000 years later. And if a generation is 40 years, that's, what, 50 generations. That's pretty good. The word of God is true. (laughs) It never fails. Now, just look back at verse 45 with me for one moment. This affirmation from Elizabeth She says this to Mary, Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. You know what the real blessing in all of this is for Mary? Mary believed the word of God. That was the blessing. She took God at his word through the angel, even though she was alarmed at first. This angel had just busted into her house unannounced. But she says, he has looked upon me. And look at verse 40, 49. Mary then gives several more reasons why she magnifies the Lord. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. He who is, the word in Greek is dynamite in English. Vinatos. He who is powerful like dynamite has done Great things, that's the Greek word mega, megalia, mega things, very large things. It it also translates as wonderful things, as in full of wonder, things that are full of wonder, splendid things. What are those wonderful things, Mary, which the Mighty One has done for you? Well, he's turned his eyes upon her, first of all, hasn't he? He didn't have to look in her direction, but he did. He then not only looks at her, but he addresses himself to her. He speaks to her via the angel Gabriel. He doesn't stop there, though. He performs a miracle with her that has never been done before in the history of the world. Has anyone ever heard of a virgin, one who has never known a man, giving birth to a baby without any help from an earthly father? The text says that the Spirit of God overshadowed her, which is really a reference back to the creation account where the Spirit comes and hovers over the face of the deep, over the waters. And he brings life out of barrenness. And so the Spirit does with Mary. He brings life out of an empty, barren womb and conceives this Son of the Most High. So this is not just any ordinary baby. Here's another thing that she knows he has done for her. This is that the eternal son of God has come to her. This is something God has never done before. He's wrapped himself. The eternal son of God has wrapped himself in flesh, has come as a baby, as a human being, and indwelt her, implanted himself in her The son of the highest will take up residence in the daughter of the lowest, the lowest degree. And in doing this, he would also fulfill a long-awaited promise from the scriptures through her. The promised son of the virgin from Isaiah's days, 700 years before this, he prophesied saying this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel which we know means God with us. And she also in this event fulfills an even older promise going all the way back to the garden, doesn't she? Of Genesis 3:15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. This woman is Mary. And the seed that was prophesied is her child, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. Not only does the Lord speak to her of these things, but he then speaks through her. And that's what this whole passage is, the Magnificat. The Lord is speaking his very word through a lowly servant girl. Why? He is demonstrating that his wisdom comes through the lowly. His wisdom confounds the wisdom of this world and those who profess to have it. And then lastly, this child would himself be her savior, the sinless one who would one day lay down his own life to redeem Mary's soul and everyone else's who trusts in him. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And she adds this, and holy is his name. It's as if she were saying, and can you believe that he would do this for me? The Holy One? That means the one who is separate from sin and from all sinners. The one who is high and lifted up. The one who is exalted and transcendent. That is, he's above and beyond his own creation. That he would take an interest in me. Not because I deserve it but just because he wanted to. This is an amazing truth. What do you suppose that that did for Mary's worship? What do you suppose that this knowledge of what the mighty has done for her did for her worship? I'll tell you. It caused her to burst forth in unceasing praise. Hmm. It's like a fountain or a spring that is just bubbling up from within. Hannah said something very similar in her prayer and that's why I wanted to read for Samuel 2 for our call, our corporate reading this morning. Hannah, who knew the Lord had done great things for her too. Hannah was not a young girl like Mary but she was a a woman whose womb the Lord had closed and she desperately wanted a child. And the Lord graciously turned his eyes toward her. He opened her womb and he granted her a son whose name was Samuel. Samuel the prophet. And listen to what Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2, the first two verses. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn, that's another word for strength, is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. So Hannah A very similar situation. There's a lot of similarities between Hannah and Mary. Both women who are unable to conceive in their own conditions. Both mothers who will bring forth children who will deliver God's people in their respective times. Samuel in the day of the judges and Jesus at the fullness of time. The the consummate redeemer who will do all the work required to bring salvation to every one of his people of all ages from the garden all the way through to his second advent. So here, Mary is essentially standing in awe of her Lord, who is also this blessed child within her. And then Mary moves from affirming the child as God, her Savior, her first affirmation, to affirming more broadly this. He is God, our Savior. That's really what verses 50 through 55 are all about. Mary is affirming that he, this child, is God, our Savior. Look what she says in verse 50. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. This is the same pronoun, his, referring to God, her Savior. She's carrying him forward in her thought here. And you might think, well, how can this child be one who could possibly show Mercy to those who fear him across generations when he's only come into her life at this point in time. But this is where we remember the wonderful prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6, where he says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He's given. He already was pre existing in heaven with the Father and the Spirit. He didn't come into being, did not come into being when he was incarnated, when he took on flesh in Mary. This is the eternal Son of God. He was there at the creation of the world. You read John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1, and you learn that it is this God, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made. By him all things were made, through him all things were made, and for him all things were made. And by his own word, he upholds everything by the word of his power. This same child was present at the creation, and he was with Israel throughout their history. He's been with God's people all along. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Brothers and sisters, how important is it that we know that this God is not only mighty, all-powerful, that he's not only holy, that is, he's separate from sin, but that he's also merciful. If she only knew this God to be mighty and holy, that would not delight her nor prompt her to worship. If you only came to know God as mighty and holy, one who is Angry with sinners every day. One who punishes sin eternally. You would be terrified of this God. You would not worship Him. But this great God is also merciful. Merciful. That means kind. Showing goodwill towards sinners who don't deserve it. It's the word that the Old Testament uses, chesed. It means loving kindness. It means God's faithfulness. His covenant faithfulness, that the promise he has made to himself and repeated to all of his children throughout the ages, he keeps himself. It refers to his compassion that is found only within himself and motivated by himself. This is his mercy. And she says, his mercy is on them, literally toward them who fear him. Mary knew Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 17, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them. I want you to notice here, this is not a statement of conditionality so much as it is a statement of fact. Mary is not saying, and David in Psalm 103 certainly is not saying that if you fear God, then he will show you mercy. That is true in a sense. He will continue to show mercy to those who fear him. But the point here is that the first mover, the first cause of anyone fearing the Lord is that God's mercy has come to you. His mercy is upon you and that is why you fear him. And what does it mean to fear him? Well, it's not talking about a fear of condemnation that would lead a person to cower and to hide from the Lord. No, this fear of the Lord means to stand in awe of Him just as Mary does. It means to magnify Him, to rejoice in Him, to recognize His mercy and His kindness to me, a lowly sinner. His mercy and His fear go together. And if God has been merciful and revealed himself to you, do you know how you'll know it? Because the Lord will show himself to you first as holy, and then he'll show you the true picture of yourself as unholy, as dirty and stained by sin, with a stain that no soap on this earth can clean. And when you've done that, you will begin to stand in awe of him. You will look to him and you will rejoice that he has shown you mercy. He has shown you your very need of him, a need for washing, a looking to him for all your hope, your righteousness, your life. This is the great mercy that is toward his people that they would fear him, that they would see their need of him and stand in awe of him and then rejoice in this truth that he is God, your Savior. But the fear of the Lord also recognizes God's justice upon all sin and sinners. It also recognizes his justice. And that is what Mary is going to show us in these next verses. How God has dealt with the wicked in the past. She's going to give us some exhibits so that we would understand this God whom we're dealing with. And she's going to use three names for the wicked. The proud, the mighty, and the rich. In verses 51 to 53. And she's going to contrast that group with those who fear God, who are lowly, and who are hungry in verses 52 and 53. And the message in each of these refrains is this in short. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to those who lift themselves up with pride. He puts them down. And rather, he lifts those up who have a low view of themselves before him. That's the idea of these following verses. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. That's just another way. That's a metaphor for the strength of God, his arm. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. That word for scattered means to thoroughly scatter. It's the the visual of a winnower who is throwing up his Uh, wheat and chaff high into the air in order to get that good separation this is the scattering that's within view and Mary's saying he the Lord scatters the proud those who show themselves above and beyond others is the literal sense of that word those who put themselves forward to be seen by others because they have a high view of themselves and consequently a low view of others And where does he scatter the proud? Well, it's in the imagination of their hearts. The English Standard Version says in the thoughts of their hearts. But the sense in the Greek is it's singular. It's in the thought or the imagination in the singular of their hearts. In other words, the proud only have one main thought according to God. And you know what that is? To exalt themselves. To put themselves forward. Part of what makes God so mighty is that he is able to read the human heart. He doesn't look on the outward appearance like we do to make judgments. He looks straight to the heart. There is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open, exposed to him with whom we have to do, to whom we must give account. Mary is saying the Lord has looked on the hearts of all the proud and he scattered those who were proud in heart. In the past, he's done this. How has he done it? Well, can I give you some examples? He wiped out the entire earth with a flood in Genesis chapter 6 because of the pride of men. He did it with Pharaoh and the Egyptians after they pursued Israel coming out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea after the Lord had parted it and caused his people to pass through on dry land. He scattered the Egyptians in the Red Sea to death, in other words. He promised that he would do it, this scattering to Israel, as a curse in Deuteronomy chapter 29, specifically to the one who hears the words of the curse and yet blesses himself in his heart saying i will have peace even though i follow the dictates of my heart and the lord says he will not spare that man but every curse that is written in the book would settle on him he would scatter them in other words he did it with the first king of israel because of his pride saul who seemed humble at the first was actually quite proud He did it with basically all the kings in the northern kingdom, and he did it with several of the kings in the southern kingdom. And when Israel was proud and idolatrous after settling in the promised land, he scattered many proud hearts throughout the nations to live in exile among pagan peoples. And then he scattered the very people he used as a tool to judge his people. First Assyria and later Babylon because of their pride. He scatters the proud in the thought of their hearts. And while in Babylon, you might remember that God showed the king, and Daniel interpreted, that the kingdom of Babylon and all the kingdoms of the world to come would be crushed and scattered to the wind by his everlasting kingdom. The kingdom of Messiah, which would be that great stone cut without hands, He did it with Herod the Great at the time of Jesus' birth. He did it with Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great in Acts chapter 12, when he took glory for himself rather than ascribing glory to God, and he was eaten with worms and died. In Romans chapter 1, we see that God does this scattering of really all the ungodly in the hearts of these people by giving them over to the lusts of their own evil hearts to be consumed by their own desires. He scatters them to futile thoughts and dark hearts. That is, those who are devoid of true knowledge and full of evil desire. He gives them over to a, what's called a debased mind. That's a spiritually non-functioning mind to do the things that are not appropriate. And he includes disobedience to parents in that list, young ones. He gives them over to sexual uncleanness and all kinds of vile passions. The Lord will scatter the proud in the thought of their hearts, whether they are kingdoms comprised of many men or if they're single kingdoms set up in the heart of an individual. He will scatter everyone that exalts himself against the Lord. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 52, that's a parallel statement and he's exalted the lowly. That's the same word that Mary uses for herself in verse 48. It's, it means the humble. He will exalt the humble. It's the opposite of the proud. It's what's described in Scripture as those who are poor in spirit. Those who know that they lack true righteousness before God. They are spiritually bankrupt before God. They have nothing to offer him and how has he exalted the lowly? Well, simply this. He's brought them salvation. He's brought them salvation. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 2 again, verses 7 and 8, where Hannah says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes. Notice this and make them inherit the throne of glory. That's just another way of saying salvation. He brings salvation to his people. In Ephesians chapter 2, we know that God has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's exalted the lowly. In verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Who are these hungry? Is she talking about the physically poor, the the homeless, the hungry? These verses, beloved, are a series of contrasts. She's contrasting the hungry with the rich here. The rich is simply this, those who are increasing in goods. Those who have no lack. They don't have any perceived lack in their lives they they're self-satisfied from their point of view those are the rich scripturally speaking the hungry therefore are those who know that they lack every good thing before the lord it's that they lack righteousness they lack standing with god they they are the real poor the poor in spirit see the rich don't see their need of salvation before god as jesus said those who are well have no need of a physician but only those who are Sick. The rich he has sent away empty, stripped away of all his goods, and sent away. You say, well, when did that happen in the past? What's Mary referring to? How about every time a sinner has died in history? Every time a sinner who does not, who leaves this world not trusting in Messiah, and Christ, they may have prospered greatly in this life. But when the Lord brings them to the end of their life, Asaph describes this in Psalm 73, the Lord has set them in slippery places and he casts them down to destruction so that they are utterly consumed with terrors. That's a picture of God casting the sinner into hell forever. That is when he casts away the rich and they are sent away empty. Empty. You see how the scripture is using synonymous ideas here? The proud, the mighty, and the rich, they're all the same group. God is opposed to them. He puts them down. He scatters them. He sends them away empty in the ultimate sense. And then you have the lowly, the hungry, those who fear him. They are the other group. And he exalts them. He fills them. He helps them. Why is it important to know that God has dealt with the wicked this way in the past? Why is Mary pointing to these examples? Well, God doesn't change, does he? If God is holy and he will punish all sinners, he has punished all sinners in the past, will he not do the same in the future? See, this is simultaneously a warning to the wicked. Repent, lest this come upon you. And it's also a point of rejoicing for the saints. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. That means we don't have to take justice into our own hands and try and make things right in this life. God is the real judge. No one is getting away with anything. Do you realize that? Every sin will be punished, either on your own head, if you don't believe and repent, or on Jesus' head, where it was fully satisfied at the cross and that's for those who trust in him so god doesn't change this is his pattern he will continue to punish sin but it also demonstrates that god alone is is god right that he's sovereign <laughs> these are the mighty that the mighty one puts down who is god god alone is god no matter how mighty and rich and proud those may seem in this life. They will all come to utter disaster and ruin unless they repent. But then the Lord gives us some good news. The bad news always has to come before the good news. Do you see that? But here's the good news. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And you might wonder, as I did, why does Mary bring up Israel here? I mean, she's an Israelite herself. She's a daughter of King David. But it's important to recognize that Mary is continuing the same theme of God humbling the wicked and exalting the lowly, the humble, in these verses. Notice how she describes Israel. Israel is described as his servant. His servant. The true Israel is not an ethnic nation in Scripture's view. This may be shocking for some. The true Israel is those who are lowly, the hungry, those who fear God, those who serve Him. You see, there's only two groups in all of Scripture as far as God is concerned there's the righteous and there's the wicked. There's His people and not His people. There's His servants and His enemies. There's believers and unbelievers. There's Israel and Gentiles. And you can use that metaphorically to represent these groups. Paul himself redefined who the true Jews are. Do you remember that in our Roman study? Romans 2? Verse 28, "For he is not a Jew who was one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, all who have been circumcised in heart and only those are the true Jews from God's perspective. Circumcised, that means no longer unbelieving. The hardness of the heart has been cut away so that we can believe. And we no longer seek praise from men, but from God. Mary is simply saying here, God has helped his people, the humble his people of all time and in all places. Yes, that started with the nation of Israel, but it has expanded and it covers the corners of the earth now. He has helped his people. He has literally supported them, raised them up, or you could just say this He has exalted them. He's exalted them. And you say, How has He exalted his people? By bringing salvation to them in every age, the same way that He did with Mary. By revealing himself to her, we don't have uh, Gabriel coming to our door and (laughs) entering and giving big proclamations of the Word of God, but we do have the wonderful proclamation of the Word of God, which is just as ironclad right before us. And He does break into our lives wonderfully, giving faith to believe His Word pointing people to Christ as his salvation. And in Mary's day, God fulfilled that long-awaited promise, didn't he? I just want you to hear from Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, what he had to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about this child. He said this in Luke 1, verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, Being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. There it is. This Jesus is the horn of salvation, this strength of the Lord who has been raised up of the seed of David. And he has come to save us from our enemies. Remember what his name means. Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Who are our real enemies? It's our sin. It's this world system. It's Satan. It's our own flesh and the sin that's in our flesh. Those are the enemies that he came to save us from and to perform this great mercy which he promised even to Abraham. And when he promised it to Abraham, he promised it to all of the seed, the the holy seed of all time. For what purpose? That we being delivered... No longer under the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day under the presence of sin, that we would serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. That we would walk in holiness. That we we would image Him rightly in this earth. Why has the Lord done this? Mary says it's in remembrance of His mercy. In remembrance of His mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And it was Mary's child, it was this eternal God who made the promises to Abraham and to his seed in every age. Those promises, which you'll remember, were categorized as a land and as a seed and as blessing. They were all just ways of describing God's salvation. And they all find their fulfillment in Mary's child, Jesus the horn of our salvation who saved us from our enemies by giving his life as a ransom for ours. Now we see the importance of affirming the virgin birth because this Jesus, if he is not born a virgin, inherits the original sin of Adam and is not qualified to lay down his life for others. But because he is born without sin, because he is the Immaculate One, He is eminently qualified to lay down his righteous life in the place of sinners like us. So Mary is just saying that God has exalted all his people with salvation and she includes herself. Hmm. What child is this? Mary's answer is, he is God my Savior. Mary's answer, he is is he is God our savior the testimonies of all the faithful in history say he is God my savior and he is God our savior why because they were blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this truth but Jesus father did and so what do you say this morning friends what child is this let's pray Father, and now we ask that you would glorify your great name among your people, that you would cause your word to take root in their hearts. And Father, that anything that I've said that is not in accordance with your word, you would strike from the record as if it had never been said. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to affirm what is true, and we want to rejoice in the truth just as Mary did. I pray, Father, if there's somebody here this morning or somebody listening who does not yet know you as Lord and Savior, that you would open their heart to receive the Savior, that they would be able to affirm, he who is mighty has done great things for me, that this is my Lord and my God and my Savior. And Father, for those of us who do know you, may we all be strengthened in faith, And may we, Lord, have a a magnified view of you in our souls. May we continually magnify the Lord and rejoice in you. And may that be evidenced through a, a life of service, sacrificial service, loving you, loving others, and seeking your honor above all things. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.